0: James Conroy is a graduate of the University of Connecticut and Georgetown University Law Center. He's been a trial lawyer in Boston for 32 years. He pursued a career in public affairs in Washington, D.C. as a House and Senate press secretary, a speechwriter, and a chief of staff. He served for six years in the U.S. Naval Reserve. He's been active in his town of Hingham on um, task forces, town committees, and as a youth coach. Uh, His love of history and a lifelong ambition to contribute to it resulted in his first book, Our One Common Country, Abraham Lincoln and the Hampton Roads Peace Conference of 1865. He received the Abraham Lincoln Institute Book Award for his book, Lincoln's White House, The People's House in Wartime. He's continued his explorations of presidential history in his new book, Fresh Off the Presses This Month, Jefferson's White House, Monticello on the Potomac. It's been the pleasure of us reference librarians to help Jim in his research. He himself is a member here, and I'm delighted to ask you to join me in welcoming him here to the Athenaeum.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that great introduction, Mary, um, and also for your help in the book, in, in previous books. Um, I uh, was uh, told that I might show up today dressed as Thomas Jefferson, at being Halloween, but I, I thought I'd just add a little touch and take it off right away so we're not distracted by it. Uh, I, uh, I do say in the book that uh, the Athenaeum is my stunning second home, and um, I feel that it is. And uh, it's a terrific staff, a terrific place. Most of you, no doubt, uh, know it well. Some, some who may not, uh, I would urge you to uh, spend a lot of time here. Um, there were two things that drew me to this concept of writing about Jefferson's White House. One was the sheer curiosity. Um, having worked and lived in Washington for quite a while, I had this sense in my head of what it must have been like when it was a white spot in the wilderness, which is what it was in 1800 when um, the capital moved there from uh, Philadelphia, originally in New York. And uh, that always struck me as an interesting thing that I wanted to learn about and get a sense of what it was like to live there and be there. And the second sort of more important point was is the relevant one to our time. Um, Jefferson, too, lived in toxic partisan times, at least as nasty as ours, believe it or not, um, at least at the uh, level of, that he played at. and. Um, I quickly learned that Jefferson, other than renovating and perfecting the White House physically, which we'll talk about, uh, used it to bring civility back to American politics after 12 years of vicious infighting, public and private, and also to elevate the culture, uh, both of which I think uh, could be instructive for us today. And uh, with that, I would... um, start with uh, the presentation. Now, I can't begin to get into everything, obviously, that's, that's in the book. There's just a lot there, and I uh, won't even try. But I will skim uh, some of the basic themes. And I think the best way to do that is with images that are, sort of speak, for themselves. And I've managed to collect a few that we'll, uh, that we'll show today. Um, thought it might make sense that uh, to start with uh, the Jefferson Memorial. You know, when Jefferson was a diplomat in Paris in the 1780s, when the other founders were writing the Constitution and designing the system and and all the rest, and when he got a letter in Paris that told him who they were, uh, he replied that this was a collection of demigods. And uh, now we have Jefferson, the demigod, in bronze in his own literal pantheon in Washington, DC. Uh, for very good reason, despite the sin of slavery, which we'll come to in a few minutes. Um, Certainly the revolution's particular champion of the common man, free speech, freedom of religion, and the separation of church and state. If you interviewed his peers, they would tell you that those were the major contributions of Thomas Jefferson, followed by, at the age of 33, Uh, writing the Declaration of Independence, which uh, remains the classic statement of our American values, if not always implemented uh, perfectly. And uh, in addition to all of that, uh, it might be mentioned that he was also a world-class architect, a world-class scientist, an inventor of a dozen or more Uh, important things, including the metric system and uh, the decimal system on the dollar, Um, the the plowshare of his time, which he kind of dashed off with self-taught calculus, um, spoke uh, four modern languages and two dead ones. And uh, there is really uh, hardly another brilliant character of his category in our history. But um, that all said, The image I prefer is this quick sketch that was done uh, of Jefferson in 1802 in the White House by his uh, architect, who we'll we'll meet a little later as well. Um, Because what appeals to me here is this kind of fascinating, complicated, brilliant, flawed human being, which is who Jefferson was, and would have been the first to tell you the flawed part, um, with a keen Uh, glimmer in his eye and a self-deprecating kind of wit that we could also use some more of uh, these days uh, that uh, just charmed everybody he met. Friend and foe. Many people were hostile to him, not just opposed uh, politically, but just about everybody liked him. Uh, A really charming, uh, genuinely interesting human being. Probably most of you have heard of the Remarks that President Kennedy made in 1962 at a dinner he held for all of the Nobel Prize winners in the free world. And he said to them then, this is the most extraordinary collection of talent and human knowledge ever assembled at the White House, with the possible exception of when Jefferson dined alone. Um, The relevant side of the book that we'll talk about today has to do with four or five basic uh, concepts that I just want to introduce briefly. One is uh, that Federalists had draped the presidency and the president's house in what Jefferson called the trappings of royalty. And we'll talk about that and we'll show some images of that. He blew those trappings away on day one in the White House. Uh, He restored that civility uh, to the political dialogue using the White House for that purpose, which we'll talk about. Um, He nudged, and I say nudged, the institution of slavery down the road toward oblivion, which we'll see as well. Um, Made the um, white spot in the wilderness, as I said, an enlightenment salon uh, that it's not been before or since. Again, with the possible exception of the Kennedy administration and uh, promoted the mysterious West uh, in the White House in his day. Uh, Newly bought, almost totally unknown, and we'll see uh, how he did that as well. A lot of other stuff in the book that I I won't touch on, but we'll skim all of that. Um, I think, though, the best place to start is at the sheer curiosity part. Whoops, if I can get it to go. There we are. Um, So this is a contemporary painting of Washington, DC, from Georgetown, a hill in Georgetown, uh, done during Jefferson's administration. Uh, The British ambassador to the United States, Anthony Mary, uh, had come direct from London and called what he found six square miles of wild country, which is essentially what it was. You can see here uh, from Georgetown, those of you who know Washington well, there's uh, Roosevelt Island in the middle, then known as Mason's Island. Uh, Key Bridge would have run, or does run now, right about there. Uh, 14th Street Bridge runs right about there, and you can see off in the distance that little white cluster of uh, a village, really, that Washington, D.C. was at that time. Um, among his other many talents, Jefferson was one of the first city planners in the history of the world, and made this sketch in the early 1790s of the layout, the essential layout of Washington DC, which still exists today on the same site. The president's house here, the Capitol here, what he called public walks in between. Uh, You can see that island over there again in the Potomac, and this little village clustered around it, which is all he ever hoped and expected it would be. Uh, a big country boy at heart and in philosophy, despised cities in principle, enjoyed them on foot, by the way, Uh, Paris, London, and others, but uh, wanted the capital of the United States to be a rustic, rural, uh, small village, which of course it quickly turned out to be uh, something much different. Uh, Andrew Wyeth did this illustration, uh, sort of envisioning the building of the White House, which was overseen Uh, not only by Washington in the corner there, but by Jefferson on the left, who, as his uh, Secretary of State, uh, took responsibility for overseeing the design and uh, imagery, if you will, of Washington. Uh, Washington was the one that wanted that big Georgian mansion. Um, Somebody said at the time it was just like Washington's vision of the United States, big, rich, and English. Um, Jefferson wanted, again, this kind of small brick, miniature Monticello, uh, but Washington was president and he was not, so here's what we got. Um, The Capitol, uh, done also at the time, is the the Senate wing uh, of the Capitol. And you can see, again, that little village off in the distance, which is where the president's house and some other buildings were. And if you look at the left side carefully, you'll see that it ends abruptly. Uh, and the reason for that is that what you really had from this uh, drawing done by the architect of the Capitol was that completed Senate wing, a wooden passageway across to the House uh, temporary quarters, which was called the oven at the time, not only for its shape, but also for its atmosphere in the heat. and. Uh, After about a week, they were literally literally afraid it would fall down on their heads, and they shorted up with beams. So you get some sense of what the city was like in those days. And this, I think, is um, a fascinating uh, map done by the modern historical cartologist, I guess it is. Is that right? Um, By the name of A. Don Hawkins in Washington, a really terrific Whoops, somebody just told me I went the wrong way. Uh, Thank you. Um, A really terrific piece of work, and I'll just sketch what you're seeing here. The Potomac is twice as wide then as it is now, hadn't been filled at all, totally unbridged. There was a ferry to Alexandria, and that's how you got to Alexandria if you wanted to get there. Uh, You can see the woods there all around it in the treed areas uh, drawn in over where the, whoops, John, I'll master this after we're done. Uh, the woods here all around the city. Uh, this is just a vast malarial marsh, uh, clouds of mosquitoes in the summer. Um, here you can see Georgetown, which is half a century older than the rest of the place. Um, the president's house here. Um, Workmen's shacks in Lafayette Square uh, we're still there after the house had been built, and nothing whatsoever else around Lafayette Square. This little village here that's kind of growing up on both sides of the president's house, and then nothing at all between uh, that and the Capitol. Um, again, Anthony Merry Mary said that the country was as uh, wild as Kentucky, except that the soil was no good. <laughs> and around the Capitol, really nothing but a few brick boarding houses, Where the members of Congress lived, none of them—literally, none of them—brought their wives or children, and they were only camped out for about four months a year, uh, but lived a pretty miserable existence. No libraries, restaurants, museums, uh, parks—nothing of that kind at Uh, all—and really wretched roads, uh, mostly on paper. By the way, you can see on the uh, on the diagram here that there are dotted lines in rows where streets would one day be. So that's pretty much what you would have seen in 1801. Um, now I'm doing something wrong here obviously here we go. This terrific image is of the Capitol in 1814, which is five years after five years after Jefferson's time in the White House but you but I, I think it's such a great image I couldn't resist showing it, put together by um, Don Bailey and the Imaging Research Center at the University of, of Maryland in Baltimore. And they took they, they did a meticulous study of everything that was there at the time and wasn't there, and recreated what the capital looked like, half built, when the British burned it in 1814. That vast empty space um, gives you a sense of what you would have found if you had uh, lived there at the time. I show you this stuck coach to illustrate the point that not only was Washington barren and uh, uh, uninviting, but it was completely isolated from the rest of the country. It was a 10-hour trip on a dirt road through a forest to get to Baltimore, and about 10 days to get to Boston. A little further if you were going to Georgia or some of the other outlying states. So once you were in Washington, you pretty much were there for about four months in that barren sort of wilderness. And by the way, as you were getting there, you would stay at a really unspeakable inn. I mean, when you read the descriptions, um, one of the innkeepers got a complaint that the sheets were dirty, and he defended himself on account of the number who had slept in them. And when the traveler woke up in the morning, there was a big bowl of common broth with a lump of meat in it. And that was breakfast for everybody who chose to partake. So once you got there, you didn't get very far if you wanted to get away. Um, This gentleman is uh, Augustus John Foster, a British diplomat in Washington in Jefferson's time, 24 years old, uh, very interesting guy, typically a Serbic Brit. Uh, Oxford educated, his his mother was the daughter of an earl and and all the rest. And uh, he he recurs in the book just because he's a good sharp foreign eye in a new place and uh, sort of speaks to us as as we might speak if we landed in in this wilderness. I'll read just a couple of things he wrote to his mother. It is an absolute sepulcher, this whole, with nothing, not even books to be had, I shall almost forget how to be cheerful in this sink of the imagination." Um, Jefferson was the very antipathy of Augustus John Foster's imperial world. And Foster came to like him and more than respect him, enjoyed him, liked him very much, was invited to Monticello and came, and writes a lot about Jefferson and the White House at that time, including his introduction, his presentation to the president, Uh, where the main topic of conversation on Jefferson's part was the joy of bare feet, as uh, Foster describes it. And Foster says he would have endorsed a still greater degree of nakedness if he could. So fond was he of leaving nature as unconfined as possible in all her works. He also said, uh, again to his mother, that being far from the civilized world, with a great swell of ocean between me and it, That he and the members of Congress had nowhere to go but the president's house unless they preferred to stay caged like bears, stupefied in their boarding house rooms. So this is uh, the closest we have of a contemporary uh, picture of the White House in Jefferson's time. It was actually done a few years after Jefferson's time, after the British had gutted it out. But it shows you pretty much what you would have seen in his day. No portico on the front, no portico in the back, no formal grounds of any kind, and essentially nothing but nothing uh, beyond the confines of the president's house. So once again, when you have Thomas Jefferson in this place, uh, able to put on the show he put on, you get a sense of what a magnet this was for anybody who wanted to escape uh, what they otherwise had to live with. When he moved in, uh, Adams had only been there for four months. Uh, John and Abigail Annups, yet turned him out, of course, in the 1800 election. And um, it was essentially a blank slate. There were 36 rooms, only six of which were usable. Most of the other 30 were not even rooms. Didn't have floors or ceilings or plastered walls. Uh, so Jefferson got this blank slate and loved the building uh, of things, the pulling up and putting down, as he called it, Uh, talented, self-taught amateur. In fact, in retrospect, architectural historians say uh, he was probably the second greatest architect in America at the time, after our own Charles Bullfinch. Uh, Just a kind of sidelight, a little hobby on the side. Um, And together with uh, the architect he brought in, Benjamin Latrobe, English-born a great architect, difficult man, uh, very contentious relationship with Jefferson, uh, both very talented, both very creative, kind of a Lennon and McCartney thing, just at each other and then cooperating and at each other again, as talented artists who pair up tend to do. Um, But together, they designed the White House that we know today. Um, This is a, a modern architectural drawing done by Patrick Phillips Schrock, an architectural historian who Helped me a great deal with the book, and um, I give it to you for example of a few things. Again, you don't see a portico front or back. The ice house is the little domed building in the middle, which is the first thing Jefferson had built because he needed the white, I, white ice house for his world-class collection of wines, and that was built there. And uh, around the whole house was dug what was called, at the time, a sunken areaway, so that the basement level rooms could get some light and some air. And to bridge that gap, to go in the front door, was a rickety wooden bridge um, that had been built as a kind of a temporary access. Um, Latrobe and Jefferson sat down in the beginning and tried to work out how the White House ought to look and came up with the Trobe's drawing here done at that time. You now see those porticos front and back. Neither of them were built in Jefferson's time. They didn't have the budget for that. But what Jefferson did do was build, with a small investment from Congress, the the, uh, stone steps and um, foundation there for the pillared portico so that the next president would really have not much choice but to build that portico, uh, which we now, of course, have, have today. Um, Next architectural point, again, Patrick Philip Shrocks' work here, uh, are the wings that extend from both sides of the White House to this day, which were designed and built by Jefferson and Latrobe. Uh, In that time, uh, just about every big house had all kinds of outbuildings, uh, kind of ugly, scattered, you know, unimpressive uh, layout. And what Jefferson's architectural kind of avatar, Andrea Palladio, had designed in the 17th century was this long set of wings coming off of a big house, which uh, would serve the same function as the outbuildings. And we'll see that in a moment. From the Pennsylvania Avenue side here on the north, all you can see is the tops of the wings, the roof, and the windows, but the ground slopes from north to south. And from the southern side, you see them exposed as a colonnaded walkway with uh, bins, if you will, or alcoves uh, separated by pillars and sealed off by French doors. And behind those, there would be the ice house, the smoke house, the uh, servants rooms. you know, the functional things that every house uh, has to have and had to have then. And uh, you can also see, by the way, the wooden balcony that uh, existed at that time outside the Oval Room before those porticos were built. As far as the interior of the house goes, you know, since the British burned the place, we really lost all of that. We don't know exactly what was there. There are no photographs, needless to say. And there are actually very few, by way of drawings, this contemporary or modern uh, rendering is of Jefferson's office, uh, which he called his cabinet, uh, now in the place where the state dining room is, in the southwest corner of the house, and you get some sense of the spectacular, classic uh, look that Jefferson Latrobe gave the house—the um, you know elaborate cornices and the ceilings, the uh, the finest collection of what he called modern French furniture outside of Paris. When he came back from Paris, he brought 15 shipping containers of furniture uh, back with him and used a lot of that to furnish not only Monticello, but the White House. Scientific instruments of all kinds lying around, maps, charts, um, and um, just a kind of wonderful place to work. you can imagine going there to the office every morning. Um, on his desk, he kept this picture of Maria Causeway, who was uh, an Italian-born uh, woman in Paris, whom Jefferson referred to, and my high school French is very, very rusty, but uh, if I don't pronounce it properly, his ami de cour uh, in Paris, his friend of the heart. Uh, Jefferson was a widower, and had promised his wife on his deathbed at her request never to remarry, which he never did do. Um, Maria Cosway was beautiful, obviously, a famous painter in her time, which was almost unique uh, in in Paris. Uh, Got the attention of Jacques-Louis David, and a very prominent painter, and a kind of brilliant conversationalist. Regrettably, this is a sketch done by her husband. Richard Cosway, who is also a well-known author. And Jefferson wrote a famous letter um, to Maria while he was in Paris about the head versus the heart, which some of you may know of. I committed to you for a lot of reasons. He talks about whether to follow the head or the heart in this kind of ambiguous but not terribly ambiguous uh, letter. And uh, whether the heart or the head won is anybody's guess. But the picture stayed with him uh, in the White House and for the rest of his life. So by way of abrupt uh, transition, this is one of the slave pens, as they were called, uh, that uh, existed in Washington DC in Jefferson's day. This one at the foot of Capitol Hill near the mall, uh, where slaves were kept and sold and paraded through the streets in chains. And um, many people knew that was a scandal and were embarrassed by it, but only a minority. Um, When we think back to that time, slavery was normal, the normal state of affairs, not only in the South, but also in the North, not on the same scale. But slavery was not abolished permanently in the North, state by state, until after Jefferson's time. Um, Also, of course, a worldwide phenomenon. There was French slavery, English slavery, Spanish slavery uh, throughout the world. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, Jefferson knew um, that uh, it was as evil as it was, um, disappoints us when we read deeply into how he dealt with it at times, and other times encourages us, and you kind of go back and forth. One minute you read, and you're kind of encouraged and pleased with how he's doing things, and the next time you're disappointed. Um, this uh, picture of Jefferson as a younger man is perhaps the right place. Uh, to to talk about this issue. Um, The great Jefferson scholar, uh, Peter Onuf, at UVA, who gave me some help on the book as well, uh, described this this conversation to me as Jefferson therapy uh, when you get into uh, comparing his genius and his brilliance with the slavery issue. But despite its normality, he despised it uh, from his youth, fought it specifically and aggressively as a lawyer and as a member of the House of Burgesses at a time when that was almost completely unheard of, fought about half a dozen battles or more, uh, one after another, in those venues and lost every one, never came close, and eventually decided in middle age that this was just not going to happen in his time uh, and left it, as he called, as he said, to the next generation. In the event, of course, it took two generations and a civil war. Um, We know though, all of that said, that in his own time, you can't let him off the hook completely, in his own time, enlightened Americans knew that slavery was an abominable crime, a hideous blot on American society, and a moral and political depravity. And we know all of that because Jefferson wrote it all in private letters uh, to friends and associates. And what he wrote for publication in 1785 includes the following. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. That said, he treated his slaves progressively, not just humanely, but progressively for his time. And in the end, denied them the same unalienable rights to uh, liberty and the pursuit of happiness that uh, he famously wrote about. Uh, Again, we we don't have a lot of time to deal with this, but uh, he, in the end, publicly referred to slavery uh, as the United States having a wolf by the ear uh, that we could neither safely let go nor hold on, and uh, just a monumentally difficult problem to solve that was not solved in his time. Uh, Monticello publishes this uh, print of... uh, uh, the kitchen at Monticello with, the, with four of the enslaved uh, women who worked there, all four of whom uh, also worked in the White House. And the kitchen there would have been very much like the kitchen in the White House. Don't have time to get into the details on that, but you'll get, you get some sense of it. Um, out of a staff of 12, uh, Jefferson created a kind of a gray zone to try to nudge things in the right direction. Uh, for slave and free labor. There were only four of those 12 were ever enslaved people. The others were free white uh, servants. And um, of that uh, kitchen staff, there was Ursula Granger, Edie Fawcett, and Fanny Hearn, all of whom were teenage girls uh, from Monticello that were brought up to the White House uh, by Jefferson to learn the art of French cuisine which they were taught by his French chef, Honor Julien, who is the origin of the Julien salad, I guess I'm told. Is that what it is, a salad? Um, and um, interestingly enough, uh, the evidence is that they came voluntarily. Uh, he wrote about uh, the staff being persuaded, uh, the slaves being persuaded uh, to come there if they chose to do it. And no doubt it was an opportunity to you know, move to a higher level, learn a valuable skill, and um, serve the president of the United States. Uh, He also had uh, the other of the five were a footman by the name of John Freeman, who he called his most valuable servant. Um, All of these enslaved people lived in the same servants quarters with the free white staff, reported to the same managers received some modest pay, very modest, but some pay, and were free to socialize in Washington and come and go pretty much as they pleased. And the theory is, he didn't write it down, but the theory that I have and others is that he deliberately was trying to model to the Senate and Congress a new version of slavery that would begin to walk toward the notion of free labor for black and white, uh, openly displayed you know, in the White House. Real quick story, uh, John Freeman, uh, the footman, served the same presidential table with two other white footmen and wore the same livery as them, very formal livery. One of those white servants said he was not going to wear the same livery and work at the same table with a Negro. And uh, the manager of the house wrote that letter to Jefferson in Monticello and told him that. And Jefferson wrote back and said, John Freeman is the best servant I have. And if Edward Marr doesn't like it, he can go elsewhere. Um, So he had that kind of progressive end to him. And at the same time, when he would go home to Monticello for the two summer months, he called them the bilious months in Washington, uh, he would leave those enslaved women in the White House, rather than bringing them with him, although their families were in Monticello as well. And they didn't get to go back and forth uh, the way he did. And doesn't seem to have given it a thought that this might not be the right way to handle things. So in any event, enough Jefferson therapy for, for the day. Um, moving on to the political issue and how he used the House politically, this is a political cartoon that was published uh, in 1802, a hostile Federalist cartoon, uh, showing God up in the corner there and the American Eagle snatching the Constitution from Jefferson before he can throw it in the devil's fire over there on the right with the other uh, satanic books like The Age of Reason and uh, Godwin on the Rights of Women all of which are going, in, as they should, in the fire. Um, uh, the Constitution would have gone too, according to the cartoonist, if God and uh, the American Eagle hadn't saved it. The, the point here is that democracy itself was at risk 12 years into uh, the American system as we know it now. There was a strong body of opinion. uh, on the Federalist side. And you can see where my biases are. Take them for what they're worth. But on the Federalist side uh, versus the Democratic-Republican side. They called themselves the Republicans originally. And they added Democratic-Republican when the Federalists used Democratic as an epithet. Uh, They owned it and published it and took possession of it. But essentially, very simplified, the Republicans and Jefferson were for a very vigorous kind of democracy, universal suffrage, um, a lot of immigration, a lot of path to citizenship very quickly with those immigrants coming in, free speech, freedom of religion or of no religion, if you chose to do that, and an advocate and supporter of the French Revolution, which was, you know, dynamite in the United States, what with the guillotines and the rest. Um, His own religious views, he was a deist, believed in God, but not in God's intervention in human affairs, um, what the Federalists called French infidelity, and roundly condemned by the Federalists as a philosopher, which was considered a derogatory term of scorn uh, that, again, Jefferson adopted and was proud to uh, put on his resume. Um, On the other end of the scale, Alexander Hamilton is sort of the leader of what was called the High Federalists, meaning the real right wing of the Federalist Party. Uh, Won't get into detail on that, except to say the irony, in my view, of the musical Hamilton, uh, who is now a rock star or a rap star, um, in the flesh Hamilton believed in the English form of government. He wanted a presidency for life when the Constitution was being drafted, a hereditary senate, what he called peers of the realm, who would inherit their positions and uh, pretty much run the country with that president for life, and a very strong standing army and navy, not only to protect the country and protect commerce, but also to crush dissent and to crush uh, the outbreak of various small um, you know, uh, rebellions that broke out here and there, the Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, and others. So um, Jefferson later said that when Hamilton was Secretary of the Treasury and he was Secretary of State, uh, we were pitted together every day in Washington's cabinet like two fighting cocks in a ring. Uh, that one's always stuck with me. Um, Now, there's a glare for Halloween, if I ever saw one. Uh, This is not Ebenezer Scrooge, but uh, Timothy Pickering, who was a senator from Massachusetts, the highest of the high Federalists. Uh, Salem was kind of the holy uh, site of high Federalism, and um, served in the Washington and Adams Administration's cabinet, uh, which uh, Jefferson called the Adams Administration, by the way, a reign of witches which I think may have had something to do with Salem. I don't know. But uh, the, sort of the arch Jefferson hater. As I say in the book, Pickering abhorred unconventional thought, if not thought itself, and called Jefferson, quote, a Parisian revolutionary monster prating about humanity and his infidel visionary schemes. When Jefferson had an abscess tooth and the word went around that he was in terrible pain, Uh, Pickering wrote a friend that, like Judas, he should find himself a rope and hang himself. That's the incurables. John Marshall, whose full-length portrait is out in the lobby, um, was a moderate Federalist. And there were a lot of moderate Federalists. Jefferson's cousin, a fellow Virginian, great justice of the Supreme Court. And the day he swore Jefferson in as president, uh, he wrote to a friend that he saw the Republicans as consisting of two camps, the outright terrorists and the speculative theorists. And he generously put his cousin in the latter group. But he was fond of him too, uh, and I, I like the comment he made in later life. He called Jefferson the great llama of the mountain. Um, So essentially, using the the White House for these political ends, uh, Jefferson knew that the marshals of the world could be wooed. He called them the federal sect of Republicans. He thought that they had kind of lost their way, that they had bad leaders that were taking them in the wrong direction, uh, away from democracy and toward this autocracy. And um, he referred to these, what he called the incurables, their leaders, um, as um, irredeemable. Uh, He said, in fact, if their hatred of me subsided, I should become suspicious of myself. Um, He did nothing to try to uh, persuade them. They were unpersuadable. uh, But he did do a lot to persuade the moderates. When he got to the White House, there's a chapter in the book about his correspondence and such with ordinary folks, which he read, believe it or not, he read every letter that he got. And there were not two or three, he would get 30 or so letters a day, and he read them all, filed them with little notes. And some of them are addressed to your lordship and great monarch, things of that kind. And Jefferson writes that it's not surprising in a people brought up with a king that they might think of the president that way. Uh, He could not reverse all of this overnight, but he could reverse what had been going on in the White House, and he did that immediately. Um, this is a contemporary painting of a levee, as it was called, uh, kind of a public reception for the right class of people that Lady Washington, as she was called, uh, held in the president's house in New York and then in Philadelphia for this very select crowd of upper-class wealthy people. Um, Albert Gallatin, who was a congressman at the time, later became Jefferson's secretary of the treasury, Uh, referred to Lady Washington as our gracious queen. Um, Washington and Adams themselves had even stiffer weekly levies for men only, without all the trappings. But you'd have to show up in your best suit. He would show up in a very formal outfit with a sword and a plumed hat and stand in the middle of a circle as people literally bowed to him, called him Your Excellency and approached him and bowed again as they did to George III. Uh, one of the Jefferson crowd uh, said, uh, called these events, fixed days upon which to gaze on him. Uh, Jefferson dropped all of that. No formal levies, no informal weekly levies. Uh, it was essentially a, a sign, he thought, of this monarchist bent. And uh, instead, uh, his way of greeting the people was just to open his door. First president that ever thought of doing that. Anybody who wanted to do so, and there weren't a lot, because you, know, you saw Washington. It's a small place. But people who lived there or visited there would walk up that wooden ramp, knock on the door, tell the doorman he'd like to meet the president. You'd be shown in, sit in the setting room, which Jefferson called it. And in 10 or 15 minutes, I would walk Thomas Jefferson, shake your hand, and chat for 10 minutes with you, whoever you are, whatever you might want uh, to to say or hear. Um, Another instance of this, Washington rolled around New York and Philadelphia in this very regal coach. um, Hugely expensive, gilded uh, accoutrements, four beautiful white horses, a footman in livery, Uh, Driving the coach and postillions riding behind it in livery. Um, Washington, or rather, Jefferson refused to ride in any coach. Uh, Where he had to go, he would either walk or he would ride alone with no servants, no guards, no nothing, and actually rode out of the White House every day at about 2 o'clock, rode for exercise for about two hours up to Rock Creek and back and the Marine Barracks or whatever, and would kind of pass among the people like a kind of fairy tale king in disguise. Nobody knew who he was. They didn't have any photographs or pictures. And he looked like a prosperous farmer on a good horse. And he would kind of stop and chat and ask people about their gardens and their grandchildren and kind of get a, try to get a sense from the people of what they were thinking, what their uh, impressions were of, of him and others, and some pretty funny stories about what they told him, which he repeated at, at dinner uh, in a very self-deprecating, entertaining way. Um, the third basic element here is that Washington always presented himself, as I described to you, uh, this is the way you might have seen him had you come to one of his levees, uh, in a very formal suit, the equivalent of you know white tie and tails in our day. Uh, powdered hair, uh, curled hair, an aristocratic sword on his hip, all these kind of trappings of imperial grandeur around the president and the presidency. Jefferson did away with all of that. Uh, he had three presidential portraits done. All of them are plain, like this, no accoutrements of any kind. Plain suits, plain clothes. In fact, more than plain, um, he was famous for uh, what the British ambassador called despising dress. Uh, he would show up in whatever was warm that day or whatever was handy, threadbare suits, uh, old-fashioned knee breeches that nobody wore anymore, Uh, Tradesmen's wool stockings, and slippers down at the heels. So this is what you'd have seen if you'd come to knock on Jefferson's door and come out to greet you. It was partly political showmanship, but it was also what he liked and what he preferred. And that's the way he dressed the rest of his life. So uh, a lot about that in the book as well. Now, the only place that Jefferson went that was not plain in the White House was the dining room. Again, the Brits took care of the dining room for us, so we don't have that. But this is Monticello's dining room, um, which is much smaller, but would have been laid out very similarly. And particularly the uh, dumbwaiters, which he had brought back from Paris, this dumbwaiter and this one over here. And what he would do is that the servants would roll these dumbwaiters out with hot food in one and cold food in another, uh, put one at Jefferson's chair and another at the other end of the table, and then leave. And the reason for that is that there'd be nobody standing there listening to everything. I mean, you watch Downton Abbey and you see all these servants standing there. And, you know, it's not a great place for confidential conversation. Uh, so Jefferson did away with servants being in the room. And he had a big round table uh, in his dining room in the White House to eliminate the idea of, of a person, you know, one person more important than another. Under Washington and Adams, there were place cards arranged by rank. You were assigned to which lady you would walk in if you were a gentleman. And you know everything very formal, very rigid. Uh, it was what Jefferson called pell-mell in the White House when he was in charge. You sat where you wanted to sit. And uh, whoever was nearest the door, as he put it, uh, could come in and sit down next to him. Um, he was a terrific gourmet, world-class gourmet, a condition for which his countrymen still have no word of their own. Um, but in his day, it was really unique. He brought back with him from Paris another three or four dozen crates of cooking devices, copper you ware, know, Parisian uh, stuff of that kind, and introduced to the United States for the very first time uh, a whole list of things like champagne, <laughs> vanilla, uh, anchovies, Italian paste, which is macaroni, Dijon mustard, and uh, Parmesan cheese, which came from Italy wrapped in lead, uh, unbeknownst to anyone as problematic. Uh, And he would sit around this round table and have these terrific conversations with the, the best and the brightest who would come there to talk about any number of subjects. There's one dinner I write about where they say the conversation ranged from farming to the produce of the various states to the properties of light. And uh, just a a, a three or four hour delight that everybody walked away with talking about uh, as, indeed, the kind of refuge that Augustus John Forster spoke of. In addition to the portable uh, uh, dumbwaiters, he had built into the dining room wall this rotating uh, server so that the servants would load the cooked food into those shelves in the butler's pantry and then spin it around into the dining room and there would be the magical appearance of the dinner. And when the dinner was done, the uh, plates would be loaded back in, spin around again and be gone, and the conversation would go on. It's the kind of thing he invented and perfected in his spare time. He also brought from France what I call in the book a gift to a grateful nation, which he described as Potatoes. This is his description now of what he wrote down. Potatoes cut in strips, fried, salted, and served with dipping sauces. (laughs) So some of the people who would have sat around that table at the time, uh, Charles Wilson Peale, who some of you may know of from Philadelphia, uh, a brilliant painter. You can see his, uh, somewhere in there he's got his palette. You can see the mastodon bones there at the foot and in the museum behind him, which he opened in Philadelphia, the first museum in the United States. And uh, just a brilliant polymath, Jefferson's kind of guy, and uh, visited several times at the White House. Um, This is who you would have seen looking across the table at uh, Charles Wilson Peel, not a casual fellow, and in fact, uh, Jefferson sent his grandson to Philadelphia to be educated and uh, asked uh, Peel if he would take him in, in his home. And Peel wrote back and said he'd be happy to do so, but his only fear was that the discipline of my house may be too rigid for a Virginian. Um, Many of you may know about this polygraph machine, as it was called, meaning for multiple writing, that Jefferson perfected with Charles Wilson Peale. You'd write your letter on one end, and it would copy automatically the letter on the other. Um, Jefferson had always written summaries of all his letters, believe it or not, and followed them. He knew that everything he wrote would be read for centuries. Uh, he even organized them in the order that he wanted historians to read them. Um, and uh, just loved tinkering with this device, which he must have spent hundreds of hours doing um, in his off hours in the White House. Thomas Paine, another visitor uh, to Jefferson's table, uh, was disorder in the flesh. I mean, this is an unreconstructed revolutionary. um, Had nothing but scorn for anything but pure democracy. Um, One of the Federalists wrote uh, after going to dinner with him that he was shocked. That Jefferson would expose his grandchildren uh, to the, in, the greatest infidel on earth, which, uh, uh, which Tom Paine was considered to be. Robert Fulton uh, came and worked and wrote with Jefferson and dined with Jefferson. Um, he also Jefferson also corresponded with an inventor who said he had an idea for a steam-driven coach, which uh, Jefferson was thrilled with and wrote back and forth to this guy about how they might perfect a steam-driven coach. Um, Here we have the Prussian Baron Friedrich Wilhelm Alexander von Humboldt, um, the most famous accomplished scientist in the world um, uh, in his day. Some of you may have heard of the Humboldt Current, uh, which runs along South America, that was named for him. Humboldt wrote in 1800 that climate change might be caused by human activity. There's a, almost a chapter in the book about Humboldt's visit to the White House. Uh, Dolly Madison, of course, uh, the wife of Jefferson's secretary of state, legendary charm and political acuity. Um, John Quincy Adams' wife writes about her, says the foreign ministers were at her feet, and the world seemed to bow before her. Jefferson adored her hostess at many of his dinners. Her husband, James Madison, the brilliant father of the Constitution, as well as Secretary of State for Jefferson, um, Augustus Foster said he reminded, Madison reminded him of a country schoolmaster in mourning for one of his pupils, who he has just whipped to death. Uh, But then when the ladies left the table, uh, uh, Foster wrote uh, that Madison told stories of a kind uh, which, in the improvement of manners, are now happily excluded from good society. Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte was the celebrity of her day. I would say the Kardashian of her day, except that she was much more substantive than any of the Kardashians. She was a Baltimore debutante who married Jerome Bonaparte, the younger brother of Napoleon, and became an international celebrity overnight. Um, this is Gilbert Stewart's portrait. It's almost like he couldn't decide which look he wanted the best. He kept the picture for a year in his studio and showed it to, to try to promote his business. Uh, Elizabeth writes, never, uh, nature never intended me for obscurity. Um, A Belgian emigre in Washington called Madame Bonaparte, quote, Jerome's superior by every measure but unearned rank. A most extraordinary girl, keen on the rights of women, a modern philosopher. And then Louisa Adams says, she was beautiful and she was followed. Balls, suppers, and parties were the consequence And we lived in a perpetual round of dissipation." Um, Madame Bonaparte really broke the internet when she showed up at the White House for dinner in a French dress in the New Empire style, which is called a la grecque at the time. And uh, one flabbergasted matron at the table called it a mere suspicion of a dress. Uh, After which, uh, Madame Bonaparte was known as Madame Eve. This is uh, Jacques-Louis David's rendering of that kind of dress that she wore to the White House. Um, And uh, a senator's wife wrote a friend at the time that quote, the pretty little Duchess of Baltimore floated through the White House in a near state of nudity, immersed in the pleasures of this life, without bestowing a thought on a future state. Uh, Jefferson served his country and seated her by his side at the table <laughs> button. John Quincy Adams, as a young man, um, was a regular guest at Jefferson's table, a Federalist senator from Massachusetts. Jefferson, of course, had turned his father out. Um, but um, he had been a protege of Jefferson's as a, as a boy in Paris. Uh, he writes in his diary at one point there, dined with Mr. Jefferson, who I love to be with. Uh, Jefferson courted him politically and won. John Quincy Adams changed his party affiliation from Federalist to Republican and uh, joined the team. He invented, Jefferson did, what were called congressional dinners, where he would have 12 or 14 congressmen, senators come to dinner at the same time, three or four times a week. Think about doing that for your entertainment. And um, he would separate the Republicans from the the Federalists uh, so as to eliminate any friction, calm everybody down, kind of bond with the Republicans, and woo the Federalists, the moderate Federalists, who came to the House, as I write in the book, expecting the smell of sulfur. And instead had the aroma of bof, 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 what is it, Bonnefont? I can't even pronounce. Coco van, how's that? <laughs> um, and um, was very successful at it. One of the uh, Federalists wrote, "I wish his French wines uh, were as good as his French politics." Um, but grudgingly came to like him and uh, joined his party as well at the end of that uh, period. Pickering came too, but was not impressed. This is Louisa Adams, um, born rich in London in 1775. Her grandson, Henry Adams, uh, writes that he was brought up to call her the Madam. Uh, My wife, who's here, uh, has said that she'd like to be called the Madam by our grandchildren, but I don't think that's likely to happen. Um, She never warmed up uh, to Jefferson at all and wrote that true capital society consisted of the charming families bred in the school of Washington and Adams, who despised the buffoonery of the modern democracy. She too actually softened on Jefferson, never, never completely. So I'm going to close with the uh, the issue of uh, promoting the West. We all know about the Louisiana Purchase, but when you see it like this, you get its impact uh, speaking for itself. It doubled the size of the country. Uh, gave complete control of the Mississippi to the United States all the way down to uh, New Orleans, which was vital. Uh, when the French owned it, there was a real legitimate fear that Napoleon's armies were going to come into New Orleans and cross over that line and just devastate this country. So there was all kinds of great reasons to buy that uh, that property, which Jefferson ballyhooed at the White House as a kind of a PR effort. Uh, very controversial at the time uh, to buy that Um, that vast uh, territory for the enormous sum of $5 million. Um, Meriwether Lewis was Jefferson's private secretary in the White House, Uh, had been a protege in his youth as well, a neighbor by uh, Virginia standards about 15 miles away. And uh, Jefferson had kind of mentored him in his youth when his father died. Uh, He knew him to be this kind of rugged, outdoorsy, dead-eye hunter and Uh, nothing like a gentleman farmer and chose him for that reason and because he trusted him and knew how smart and capable he was uh, to uh, head this expedition. Uh, One of the key missions of that expedition was to make contact with the Indians, the Western Indians, and uh, Lewis had specific instructions to send back with escorts some of the leading chiefs that he would meet there and have them brought back to Washington to be wooed as well um, and be shown not only what a powerful friend the United States uh, would be, but also subtly what a powerful enemy it would be as well. This is a contemporary uh, pastel of one of those actual chiefs who came back uh, to the White House. This one from Kansas, uh, from the Osage tribe. Others came from as far away as Montana. Uh, 1,800 miles away, over absolute empty wilderness. It's like coming from the moon. And you can imagine, people were used to kind of assimilated Eastern Indian tribes, but they had never seen uh, anything like this. Only French fur traders had seen these these Indians. And they would come in groups of 20 or 25, uh, riding through the streets in their regalia, and just you know, followed by crowds of boys, and just made a sensation. Um, Real quickly, I'm already over my time, but I'm almost done, but uh, two quick stories. Uh, They brought one of these chiefs out to the Navy Yard to intimidate him, basically, in a polite way, and showed him these vast ships, you know, the United States had, and uh, brought him over to a cannon and asked him to pull the lanyard, not telling him what was going to happen. So the chief pulled the lanyard and flinched not an eyebrow, no reaction whatsoever. They knew what these people were doing, and they were determined not to be intimidated. On the other hand, when they brought those chiefs to the White House for dinner, and they sat around the table with Jefferson uh, in July, one of them reached into the, uh, one of the wine coolers and pulled out a cube of ice and could not believe that this had happened. He said through his translator, you know, we had heard about the miracles in the East, but nothing like this. We never heard of anything like this. And my own theory is that they knew they were not going to be intimidated by ice, so they could uh, show their uh, awe and amazement by ICE without fear of uh, of that. Uh, Jefferson then used the entry hall to the White House as a kind of museum of these Indian artifacts that Lewis and Clark brought back. They were gone for two and a half years. And for two of those years, nobody knew where they were, if they were alive or dead, no communications of any kind. Again, it's like being on the moon, only worse, no radio. Uh, and they came back with these incredible treasures, which Jefferson displayed. It's kind of the first museum in town uh, to use the White House as a platform for that. This then is the White House burned uh, in 1814, which destroyed everything that Jefferson and and Latrobe had did but the wings, which you can see off to the side there, uh, that are still here today. So in closing, I would like to read to you, if I may, just a few sentences from the book, which I've tried to avoid doing, but I think it sums uh, my my position up on on all of this. Thomas Jefferson was a tangled up mix of contradictions, a torrid revolutionary and a temperate head of state, a passionate egalitarian who owned slaves and hated slavery, a champion of the people wary of the common man, a patrician despised by his own privileged class. Two centuries after his time, it is fashionable to attack him with modern sensibilities and ample ammunition, but accurately portrayed as a shockingly brilliant, instinctively kind, irresistibly charismatic, sometimes disappointing, unevenly admirable human being who revered his country's principles and subdued his better instincts in complicity with its sins more often than conscience allowed. In this, he was much like our other great presidents, let alone the rest of us who are not shockingly brilliant or irresistible. (laughs) Judged against his founding peers in his own time and place, his contributions to our country were second to none and his flaws on a par with theirs. Most important, perhaps, for our own troubled time, his vision of how a president can heal a divided nation and restore its aspirations shows us what is possible. I thank you. And I'm happy to thank you.